congratulations, CJ. That is awesome. Let's give him another hand, shall we? That's, that's really cool. Cool. Well, I want to welcome all of you this morning. Thanks so much for being here. My name is Seth. I am one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. Really elated that you guys are here this morning as we connect back and continue this series that we've been in for about the past seven weeks that we've called a 90-day trek through the Bible. Basically, what we've been looking to do throughout this series is to take uh, different portions of the scripture, different themes that we find throughout, kind of walk through those and have all of those point up to what we call like the mega plot line or the mega story of the Bible, which is this mega story or big idea of the narrative of God's salvation. So we've been having a tremendous time doing that. And let me just say, if you are a guest with us today, or if you've been a little bit disconnected with the series in the past few weeks, I want to encourage you, if you go to our website, medinaeast.graceohio.org. You can catch up on all things, uh, weekend services, uh, sermons, and all that good stuff, as well as access a number of the supplemental resources that we have really tried hard to connect you with throughout this series. Again, you can do all that on our website, and we encourage you to do so. So again, about seven weeks ago, we started this conversation, a 90-day trek through the Bible. And uh, in the first couple of weeks, we sort of took a different, uh, a specific angle um, on our discussion. And that angle was we talked through for several weeks what the Bible says that we are saved from. And so the last couple of weeks, we've kind of shifted or pivoted the conversation a little bit to talk specifically about what the Bible says we are saved by. So what's really the difference when we talk about being saved from or what the Bible says about being saved from or saved by? Well, I'm just going to put a quick definition on the screen that I think is going to be helpful for us. What we're saying is we're looking to see when we talk about the Bible saying that we're saved by certain things of God's plan, we're looking to see how and by what means God accomplishes the salvation of humanity. So how and by what means God accomplishes the salvation of humanity. In other words, we're looking to see how God actually executes on this rescue plan that he's launched for human beings and for the world. And so last week, Pastor Tony talked through a little bit of the book of Judges, and he continued that part of the conversation, and he said, basically, the Bible says we are saved by the living God. So not by some cheap imitation God that that human beings invent to bend to their own preferences or even worse, morph into something that looks more like them than anything else. Tony shared with us that the Bible says we're saved by the living God, that there is no one else that contributes to the rescue of the world and its salvation other than God. There's no special entity or other person that contributes or helps God out with that, that God accomplishes that alone by himself and in his power. And and while the Bible authors are unanimous in sort of their testimony about that fact, we actually do get a little bit maybe of a different flavor when we read the Bible on occasion. Um, If we look at it almost like from a different dimension or a different point of view. Um, The Bible authors, while they're unanimous that only God can save, we seem to get the impression time after time, story after story, that God isn't necessarily interested in accomplishing this plan of salvation alone. Now, he could easily go solo on the whole project, but we get, again, we get this distinct impression that God is more interested in collaborating with human beings to work out this plan of salvation that we find that is the mega plot line or the mega story of the Bible. So this is to say that if we read a specific passage or a narrative and we were to ask, okay, who saved the people in this narrative or this story? If we were to ask that question, who saved the people? 
in uh, one group of people could easily go to that passage and say, well, God did, obviously. God saves the people. It's the unanimous testimony of the biblical authors. And yet another person could walk into those same narratives. I mean, think about like the flood where people needed rescued. Think about the Exodus where, uh, where the people of Israel are taken out of slavery to Egypt. Think about some of the things in the book of Judges. Another person could walk into those stories and if they're asked that same question, how does God or how, how are the people saved? Who saves the people? Very comfortably, you could also say, well, in the flood, Noah does. Noah saves the people, right? Or in the Exodus from Egypt, Moses is the guy that saves the people. Or in the book of Judges, one of the judges and so on and so forth. And interestingly enough, neither one of these answers would be necessarily incorrect. And so I know what I'm doing. I am deliberately introducing attention to all of you this morning. So before you guys, I know what's happening in your minds, at least for some of you, you guys are starting to make the case to accuse me of blasphemy, right? Because only God can save these human being things. What are you saying, Seth? Where's Pastor Tony anyway? You know, that idea. Let me just give you a little bit of an example of maybe what I'm talking about from something that um, may be common to our experience, but is something that I'm going through right now in this moment in my life. So about two and a half years ago, um, we decided to, my family and I, we really felt called to uh, come here and to participate and be a part of this community at the Medina East Campus here at Grace Church. And so for the last two and a half years, what some of you may not know is that we have been living in Parma which is about 30 to 35 minutes due north of here, depending on traffic and, of course, construction, right? So we've been living in about 30, 35 minutes away, and, and that's kind of been a challenge for us because one of the things that my wife and I feel very passionate about is actually living in the community in which we're serving. So for the past two and a half years, it's really been our heart to relocate to Medina and really be able to serve in what we feel is like an effective way in the way that God wants us to. So it's been a long process, but I actually get the awesome opportunity to share with you guys that just this past Monday, oh, this is so awesome. Just this past Monday, we signed a purchase agreement. So we sold our house and just this past Monday, we signed a purchase agreement to live just east of the square here in Medina. So we are, thank you guys. I appreciate that. That's so cool. I really appreciate you celebrating that with us because it's, it's just really on our heart to do so. So as I think about this process that we've gone through in selling and buying a home, um, it can be really confusing and really frustrating. And there can be a lot of stress and pressure that's associated with that. And so as I think back already in the last week, one of the best decisions that we have made as a family is to get a realtor to help us out in that process. So if you think about a realtor, now I could, I could easily buy a home without a realtor. Well, maybe not easily, but I could definitely go about doing that. There's absolutely nothing stopping me from going solo on that whole endeavor. But if I partner with a realtor, it gives me the opportunity to work directly with somebody who knows the ins and outs of the business. Now, if you think about it, whether I have a realtor or whether I don't, there is a certain amount of authority um, that I have in that process regardless. So if I have a realtor or if I don't, um, I still have like my will or my desire to be in a specific location, to be in a house with a certain number of rooms, to know what price that I'm able to or willing to afford to pay for the house, to know if I want one and a half bathrooms or two. 
which is a first century problem. I get that, but still. So again, there is a special amount of authority that regardless of whether I have a realtor or not, is mine in the process. Think about it. When it comes time to sign on the dotted line for all the paperwork, the loan officers don't care about the realtor's signature. They care specifically about mine because, again, I have a measure of authority that I simply do not share with my realtor. But if we do think about the flip side of this coin, if we think about a realtor for a second, a realtor's job, if they're a good one, is to sit down, whether once or on several occasions, is to sit down with the buyer and start to really establish a relationship where they begin to ask questions and interact with the buyer to draw out some of those very things that I alluded to before, some of those things that I have in my authority that I don't share. And yet this realtor, again, if they're a good one, they're going to start to draw all that out so they can represent me well. In that respect, they are a true real estate agent, an agent who represents the desires and the will of another person. So as I think about my relationship with my realtor, I communicate those things. I communicate how many, how many bathrooms I want. I communicate where I'd like to be, how much I'd like to spend. And then with the authority that I acknowledge and I give to my realtor, she then takes that and within those parameters, she represents me, my character, my desire, my needs, all those sort of things. So in that respect, the realtor does have a measure of authority, but it's not the authority that I have as the homeowner. Usually, issues begin to arise with realtors when buyers start to get the impression that the realtor is more concerned about their commission or increasing their commission than they are about faithfully reflecting the reputation, the desires, and the needs of the homeowner. So again, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. If we think about this, who are we saved by and that tension that I talked about earlier, this is actually a great way to sort of depict how this relationship, this collaborative relationship between God and human beings and the plan of salvation works. You see, God is, a, like, like in this analogy, like the homeowner. As a matter of fact, there are several statements in scripture. It's, it's all over the place, but you hear words or phrases like, uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. Or heaven is God's throne, the earth is his footstool. Or other phrases like the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. All of these statements are alluding to the fact that God has an authority as the creator of the world that is simply not shared by his human beings, by his subjects, by his representatives. However, in this beautiful yet mysterious relationship that God has with human beings... God has contracted human beings as like real estate agents to reflect and represent him, to take his reputation and his character and have what's called dominion over the earth. So if we think about it, God has ultimate authority that is not shared with human beings. And yet we even see in passages like Genesis chapter 2, when human beings are like first created, God extends to them a job description. He gives them a vocation, and that vocation is that they have dominion over the earth. What's that mean? Again, it's kind of like that realtor principle. It's a derived authority. Human beings are God's agents that are intended to reflect his heart and his character into the world. 
Now that is, is pretty awesome, right? I mean, I think it, it gives, it extends like a value to human beings that we wouldn't understand or appreciate if we didn't sort of have that revelation about what God desires for us in the back of our minds. And that's a pretty incredible thing. But like with a lot of other truths in scripture, we have a question that then naturally arises when we think about the relationship, the representative relationship that human beings are supposed to have to reflect God's character and his heart into the world. Especially if we turn the page from Genesis 2, when God gives dominion and authority to human beings to run the world on his behalf, over to Genesis 3, where we see that sin, this little ugly thing called sin, has not only broken that relationship with God and human beings, but it has also fractured human beings such that they don't reflect the very God that they were designed and created to represent. So this then becomes the natural question in light of that, in light of that idea, in light of what we're exposed to in scripture. With this agency thing in mind, the question is, what exactly does an agent of God look like when they are acting on God's behalf to bring the salvation that only God can offer. In other words, what does it look like for human real estate agents to faithfully act on behalf of God who has charge of the whole house of the earth? Now, truth be told, the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, gives us a number of different figures uh, when kind of answering this question. But from about 1 Samuel onward in the Old Testament, the biblical authors give a specific figure as they attempt to give insight into the answer to that question. What does a faithful image bearer representative human being look like? And that figure is none other than the great Israelite king, David. Some of you may have heard of him. So here's what we're going to do for just a couple minutes. We are going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. That is the first place where we meet David, and we're going to maybe look to pull out some uh, observations from the story as it debuts David for us in the Bible. So we're going to do that. Um, if you brought a Bible, I encourage you, First, cha- for, uh, first Samuel chapter 16, we're going to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, um, or if you forgot to bring one, there are some Bibles under the seats in front of you. You can follow along that way. It'll be on page 196 in those Bibles. Uh, we'll also project it on the screen here behind me so we can all follow along. And let me just also say that if you don't have a Bible, um, or if you have an archaic, like outdated these and thous, I don't understand this at all sort of Bible, you can just take that Bible home with you that you find under the seat, uh, under the seat in front of you. That's just our gift to you. So, uh, as you're flipping to First um, Samuel chapter 16, I just want to give us a little bit of context that's going to help us understand what exactly we're looking at in this particular passage. So at the time of First Samuel 16, Israel is under the leadership of King Saul. Now, this is not the Saul that becomes Paul that has his name changed in the New Testament. This is actually a leader from the tribe of Benjamin who from the very outset when we meet him in this story is described in the most favorable of language. Okay, so when we first meet Saul, he is described as having a head above the rest, which doesn't just mean that he was tall. You could pick him out in a crowd. That was true. But because of this, he would have been considered a person of greater honor or greater reputation than the rest of the Israelites, than the rest of his countrymen. And so if we follow Saul's story, again, we, we uh, understand that he's also, we come to understand he's also handsome. He's cute. Huh, It's a nice guy, I like him, he's cute. And, check this out, 
he also, his daddy's got money. His daddy's real wealthy. So he comes from a family of affluence. Now, if you are an ancient Israelite woman, here you are looking at Saul. He's tall, dark and handsome. He's tall. He is worth honor, is worthy of honor and reputation. He's got money and he's cute. This is the ancient Israelite equivalent of a hottie. Okay? Yeah. Wow, that's a little odd. Okay, anyway, we'll continue on. That really threw me off. No, it's good. So Saul's story gets even better from there. Okay? So not only is Saul all of those things, he also starts to, when he becomes king, he also starts to just like systematically vanquish Israel's enemies. He goes to battle. He's strong. He's victorious. He shows himself to be able-bodied. So Saul is not only um, originally portrayed in favorable language, he is also showing himself to be quite the mighty person. And so here's the deal. As you start to approach 1 Samuel chapter 16, you get this notion that, oh, look at Saul. This is the kind of guy that God would choose to partner with to restore the world and defeat God's enemies. This is the kind of guy that would reflect God's character and be used by God to be in collaboration with God to work out God's plans and purposes. But interestingly enough, and we're almost there in 1 Samuel 16, so just sit tight for a second. We actually see in Saul's story that there are a couple of hiccups that happen after he's introduced. The first, is the, the first of these is pretty amazing. So Saul is uh, about ready to go do battle with some of Israel's enemies. He's about to do that whole vanquishing thing again, military might. And so he's waiting before a battle to offer a sacrifice or to have Samuel the prophet offer a sacrifice on behalf of the army of Israel before they would actually go into battle. Now, this was customary not only in Israel, but in other surrounding nations of Israel's day during this time. The idea was that the representative of God, this prophet, would come and offer the sacrifice. And it was symbolic of saying that you were inviting God into the equation so that God would be the one to lead you into battle. So that it could be said again that God was the one that defeated your enemies, but he used human beings to do so. So that's what's happening here. And so here's the thing about Samuel at this point. Samuel's really old. So he takes a long time to get anywhere. No offense if you're older, I'm just saying, okay. Takes forever to get anywhere. And so Saul starts to get impatient. And he decides, okay, forget it. I'll just do the sacrifice and then we'll go into battle. It's time to vanquish. I want to run my spear through somebody for heaven's sake. So Saul offers the sacrifice. They go to battle. And after the battle's finished, Samuel finally rolls up. He gets off his Vespa. And he says this to Saul, interesting. He says, because of your disobedience, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then we actually get another incident very similar where Saul disobeys a command of the Lord. Samuel, late as always, rolls up in his Buick. And he says, basically, the kingdom's going to be taken away from you, Saul. And Samuel turns to leave, and Saul's probably like, this old codger, I've had about enough of him. So he reaches out, and he grabs Samuel's garment, and the thing totally rips. And this is so epic. Samuel turns around, and this is what he says. He says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. 
Dang it, Samuel. Dang it. That is so well timed. It's like perfect. Man, I wish I had one liners like that. I mean, you can imagine if Samuel had a posse, he would say that and they'd be like, oh, he got you. That kind of thing. So again, what do we have here? Initially, we have, hey, Saul, this guy's it. This guy is an agent of God. He's going to reflect who God is, power, might, authority. But as we continue on in Saul's story, there's a little bit of a tension. We seem to think that, okay, wait, maybe, is, maybe God's not like that. And that's when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16. So we'll dive in here, verse one. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer, which is what you always do in situations like that. Uh, the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do you are to anoint for me the one I will indicate. Let's just pause real quick because there's a couple concepts here that we should probably understand that are maybe a little foreign to us. This whole idea of the word anoint, what Samuel would have been doing, comes from a Hebrew word called mashak. Now, mashak simply meant to smear or to pour heavily over. And it's actually where we get our word messiah. So the idea is that the oil, which comes out of this horn, would have been smeared over the face or poured like drenched over the top of a person who was going to be what they call anointed, which was set apart for God for some specific purpose that God wanted to accomplish through that person. So it became very customary in that time to anoint kings because kings were the ones that were said to lead the people and reflect God or represent him most clearly. So that's what's happening here. We're almost privy to a kingly coronation ceremony that's about to happen. So verse four, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. One more pause here. The word consecrate is very closely linked with the word anoint. The idea would have, would have been uh, that you would set yourself apart for some kind of event where God was going to show up and like the world was going to change. So when, uh, when Samuel says consecrate yourself to Jesse and his house, it's like, hey guys, get yourself ready. You have to prepare yourself for what's about to happen because God is going to show up and your life is never going to be the same. That's this idea of consecrate. All right, so verse six. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, which is Saul's firstborn, and thought, check this out. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So, logically, he then asks Jesse, 
are these all the sons you have? Are you holding one back from me, weirdo? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down, meaning business is not done, until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. And then Samuel left for Ramah. Okay. Does anybody else get the impression that David is a complete afterthought in this story? At least prior to the end. Complete afterthought. I mean, here is Samuel the prophet of God, and Samuel's a big deal. <laughs> I'm sure Samuel wouldn't have said I'm kind of a big deal, but Samuel's a big deal. Samuel comes down, he's the prophet of God coming to Jesse's house, and David isn't even close to being inv- invited to the party. I mean, how small and insignificant do you have to be in your own father's eyes for him to not invite you? I mean, I could imagine this thing playing out a little like this. David comes in for his morning breakfast. He's looking around. He goes to Jesse, his dad, and he says, hey, dad, uh, something's different today. It looks like everybody's consecrated. Looks like all this stuff is consecrated here. Is there a consecration going on? Something different today? Jesse's like, no, 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 no consecration to see here. Nobody's consecrated. It's just a regular run of the middle day. Oh, by the way, David, um, the sheep in the pasture that's furthest out from our house, those are the ones that need to be taken care of today. Okay, dad, no problem, but you sure nobody's being consecrated. I see a lot of consecration happening here. No, 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 David, no consecration happening here. Now, here's the deal. This whole story reminds me so much of kickball. Kickball. Now, seriously, think about it for a second. Remember middle school playground at recess when it was time to pick teams for kickball? (laughs) This reminds me so much of this, like, I absolutely, like I love recess, but I absolutely hated, like I loathed the point in time where it was time to pick teams for kickball. I always felt like my, my, I got sick to my stomach and I always felt like I was going to lose that cafeteria sloppy joe that I had had like 10 minutes earlier, which wasn't even that good anyway. But like, here, and it, was, it didn't really have anything to do with the fact that I thought I was going to be the last one picked or anything. I full well knew my place in the recess athletic hierarchy. I, I wasn't going to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, neither was I going to be the last one picked. I was sort of right in the middle. And, and maybe I was just a weird kid. Maybe I had more compassion than everybody else, which is probably not likely. But my stomach would always churn at that point in time when we were picking teams. When you've got this sea of people on one side and the last two people that we're all staring at on the other side who had yet to be picked. Oh man, it was just nauseating. It was so awkward. It was silence because nobody even thought that either of these guys had what it would take to play the game, to actually contribute effectively. But the whole like nauseating stomach churning thing went into overdrive when the second to last guy was picked and came on this other side. There in all his glory, Mr. Irrelevant, walking the long mile to the team 
that picked him. Now, I, actually, no, the team, the last guy didn't even get picked. I mean, this guy was inherited. So if you think about this and you start to plug the story into this illustration, or this portrait, I think it works out really well. Now, think about it like this. If you were picking teams for kickball, you would be considered a, an idiot to pick that guy before he was inherited last. You'd be considered an idiot. How much more foolish and stupid would it look like if you made that guy the captain of your team? This is what's going on here on the surface here in 1 Samuel 16. So we would think, one would think in their logical, rational mind, that if God were going to pick a new king, if he were going to pick a wise, mighty, strong, powerful leader, why would he pick David? Why would he pick David? I mean, the kickball paradigm is so strong for Jesse that he doesn't even invite David into the party. And actually, initially, the kickball paradigm's operative for God's own prophet. He looks at Eliab, the firstborn, the first one to pass by, and he's like, surely this is the guy, man. He must look like a stud. And yet we get this one key verse in verse 7 that starts to take this whole perspective and turn it on its head. What does verse seven say? It's one of the only times in this passage where God speaks and it says, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature for I have rejected him. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's as if God is on the scene here saying, guys, you are so conditioned to view people from the standpoint of your own brokenness, that you completely miss the fact that I define greatness, significance, power, authority, and leadership very, very, very differently. And if we think about this for a second, it's not altogether that different for us today, is it? Think about the story. Think about today. Our society and our culture has preconditioned every single one of us to assume that power and influence are the attributes of wise and crafty people who exercise control over others and leverage their status and their power for personal gain more often than not at the expense of other people. In fact, if you don't believe me, take a look at the definitions for our word power in the English dictionary. Ready? First definition, political or national strength. Great or marked ability to do or act. Strength, might, force. Possession of control or command over others. Political ascendancy or control in government of a country or state. A military or naval force. What do all these things have in common that society and culture has tried to drill into us from a human point of view? They have in common that they're all rooted in the base assumption that real significance and real leadership is holding influence in a way that exalts the self at the expense of other people. But now if we start to look back at this story and we start to acknowledge that there is an upside down nature 
to God's definition of what true power and leadership looks like, we get a little bit more of a clue. Here's David, who has zero professional experience if one were looking only from outward appearances. I mean, this guy hasn't even led real people. He's only led sheep. But here God sees past the outward appearance And you can only imagine that back then it was the same as it is for us, that deep down inside, we really question whether we are effective, significant, or have power at all. But most of us, if we're just going to be brutally honest, do a great job of faking it till we make it. Pretending by building a wall of outward appearance pretending that we have it all together and acting in such a way where power and influence is is done in such a way where we walk over other people and it's basically like, I want to get mine. But here's David who is a lowly shepherd. And interestingly enough, God would take that lowly shepherd, he would take David's job description before he was king, and he would use that to develop in David the character qualities that it would take to lead a people in the way that David would be considered an agent of God to reflect God's heart and his care for human beings and his desire that human beings might be saved. So this passage asks us to take this upside down perspective of God, to abandon our existing perspectives of what power and control and authority really look like and to adopt a new perspective that is one that takes on the vision of God who sees not at the outward, but drills straight into the heart of a person. The heart being the whole of a person and the trajectory to which their life is pointed. So that's David here. And then David grows up, and again, he learns how to lead effectively by shepherding. He learns how to lead a people. And David will grow up, and he'll become king over all Israel, and become the most significant leader that the people of Israel had throughout the course of their history. So much so that every single king who appeared on the scene after David was considered either good or bad in comparison to David, who is this anointed one who reflects God's desire of the heart. So much so did all the other, or were all the other kings evaluated against David that the prophets, as they looked on some of these kings, began to start to tell a little story. And there was an expectation that we start to find in the prophets as they wrote that began to swell that one day down the road, God would show up and he would have a son of David once again be placed back on the throne. And he would have a heart like David's, a heart that would look to and desire to reflect God in the truest of ways. There was this, if we might say that this way, there was like this messianic expectation that began to grow and grow and swell that one day God would work through a son of David to put things right once and for all and to truly show and unfold his heart for saving humanity and the love that he has for people. Now, as we turn the page from the Old Testament into the New, It's then no secret, it's no surprise that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, 
starts to make such the buzz that he did in the first century. Think about it. Jesus, when he comes on the scene in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, is called the Messiah. He's called the anointed one, the one who is set apart to reflect and reveal who God really is. We, we read in the first chapter of Matthew, the very first chapter in the New Testament that brings us over from the old to the new, that very first chapter is a long genealogy. And what's its purpose? It's to trace Jesus's lineage all the way back to Abraham, right through David, right through David. And then a couple chapters later in Matthew chapter three, we have this guy, John the Baptist, who is saying things like, prepare to the people, prepare the way of the Lord. Make a straight path for him. Make it easy for God to come because God is coming. And when God shows up through his agent, the world is never going to be the same. This is the language of consecration. And then as Jesus comes down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, he's shown to be the anointed one, not by pouring a bunch of oil on his head and acknowledging his kingship. He is completely dunked, subsumed under the water to acknowledge his kingship, to acknowledge his authority. And then you have the words of Jesus himself. Listen to these words. There's just a small sampling here of what this is all about, all over in the place in the gospels. Matthew 20, Jesus called his disciples together. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you guys, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve the king of the world, to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 18, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. They asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So if you're going to be king, who's the greatest where you rule and reign? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And in case any of these weren't abundantly clear for us about what Jesus comes to tell us is true significance and true power and true authority, we get quite possibly the most vivid expression that Jesus gives of himself in John chapter 10, verses 11 and then 14 through 15. Listen to what he says with all of 1 Samuel 16 in mind. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the good king the promised ruler of David, his son. The good shepherd, what does he do? He lays his life down for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. 
just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Think about the real estate agent analogy. Jesus comes not only to show us who the true living God is like, Jesus in humble serving and sacrifice comes to fully display what being a fully formed representative human being of God is actually all about. Think about this. Jesus here, he's the king of the universe. He's the rightful Lord of the entire world. The one who most perfectly demonstrates God and perfectly demonstrate, demonstrates what it looks like to be an authentic human being who is made in God's image. And what is he doing? What is the character quality that comes out? Jesus is not exercising power to gain. He's exercising the greatest power in the universe to give. Not any longer enslaved to passions and lusts and the desire to pour into myself, to grow big and strong and mighty, to get what's mine. But a true freedom from that slavery that says, I am now freed up to look like God and serve other people relentlessly. This is what we need. This is what we need. Although we are led around by so many different people in our society and culture, so many different figures that in the media that are plastered all over the place and shoved right in front of our faces, the real leader that we need is Jesus. The real leader that shows us what God is like and what God has in mind for human beings when he rescues them is none other than the good shepherd. We need this kind of leader. We need to be saved by someone who demonstrates to me what it looks like to have a relationship with God. But beyond just a relationship with God, a relationship that results in an amazing partnership by which God works through me and through you to realize his salvation purposes for the world. The point of Jesus being the ultimate real estate agent over God's house of creation and his plan of salvation is so that when we believe on him, he can, by his power and authority in serving us, rework us, transform us, make us new so that we can look like he looks and be the real estate agents over God's creation by which God's saving plan is made known very clearly as you and I who follow Jesus proclaim the good news about God's rescue plan to the entire creation. That's a beautiful thing. The the problem is, is I have this issue and I I'm I'm pretty sure I'm banking on the fact that we all have it. I have this problem. See, so many times though, even though I know all this, I am more interested in following the power brokers of the culture, the leaders of our culture, rather than I am in following the good shepherd. I mean, think about it. We are constantly being discipled, trained by people in our world who really just desire to get fat and wealthy off of us. Not to use their power and privilege to show me a better way, but to suck every last drop of life out of me. And here's the thing, even though I know that to be true, 
And even though I know that there is a good shepherd that shows me to lead in a better way, to lead me to a better way, here's the real problem. When I line up all the potential leaders that I could follow in my life, like the kickball game, and when it's time to pick a leader, I choose the healthiest. I choose the most successful. I choose the athletic one. I choose the strongest. I choose the most attractive. I choose the most business savvy. I choose the sexiest. And so often I just pick Jesus last. But the beauty of who Jesus is And the real power that he comes, the real power of God that he comes to demonstrate is that even when I pick him last, he bows low as the humble king to serve me relentlessly, letting me know that the sacrifice that he made on the cross is available to me to give me a new kind of life where it becomes possible to grow and transform into a servant of God who loves radically just like Jesus did. Jesus comes as this humble king who perfectly reflects the character and the heart of God to serve us relentlessly. Jesus is always bending ever so farther toward human beings and our brokenness so that we might realize that there is life and wholeness, salvation and repair, being who we were meant to be in Jesus alone. I'm going to ask the band to come up as we kind of shut it down here as we close down our conversation. But I have uh, three different kind of audiences that I, I think I'd just like to address here real quick to challenge you to what it looks like to even take the next steps in something like this. For some of you who are here today, you, are, you would characterize yourself as wandering around aimlessly in your life. You would characterize yourself as a person that doesn't really have a leader. I'm a go-it-alone person. I just want to challenge you, not to be rude, but I just want to ask you a legitimate question. How's that going for you? Some of you are walking around leader, leaderless, just trying to find the next thing that might, that might make you feel like a life is actually worth living, like that this counts for something. I want to challenge you that if you're there today, as as the band plays, as we sing together, I just want to challenge you to invite the humble king to illustrate and show you just what he did for you on the cross, to serve you in a way that shows you what true leadership and significance looks like so that you might follow his pattern and become like him with the power that he gives you. Some of you are being, uh, you would characterize yourselves as being, yeah, you're being led around, but you're being led around by all the false shepherds that litter the landscape of our culture. And for those of you who feel that way, being led around by false shepherds this way and that, never quite feeling fulfilled, I also challenge you as the band plays and as we sing together to just invite the example of Jesus to be made real in your life as we do this. Just invite the Holy Spirit to show you specifically the amazing power, the amazing freedom that is in committing your life 
to following Jesus in discipleship. Really, we saw a baptism earlier. That's this public declaration of exactly that, that I'm going to commit to follow this leader and have him train me into what it looks like to be a loving servant of God that serves other people relentlessly. And then for a final audience, some of you today are uh, claiming Jesus as your leader, as your shepherd, the one who goes before you. But your pursuits are communicating something very, very differently. Again, as we sing and play, it's just time to thank God that he doesn't leave us there. It's time to thank God that we can return to the Jesus whose sacrifice is always available to us and is whose sacrifice is so vivid and amazing, it begins to draw us closer to him by, that by God's grace, he can do the work to transform us into the likeness of Christ. And therefore, once again, take on this vocation of being the real estates, the real estate agents of God's plan of salvation and plan for the rescue of the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus, to make it vividly clear what you're like, as well as what you desire a human being to be truly like, as you look to collaborate with us to bring your salvation to the world, to tell the story of the gospel, but also to be in a renewed and restored, vibrant relationship with you. Jesus, we thank you for showing us very vividly what an example of this looks like. Thank you for constantly serving us. Thank you for moving toward us, even though a lot of times our movement is away from you. Jesus, thank you for loving us even when we pick you last. And thank you, Lord, for the transformative power, Jesus, that you bring because you sent your Holy Spirit to do the work, to give us this breath of new life so that we could be conformed to your likeness, to look like you and partner to share this gospel with the people that we come in contact with. God, this is, this is all about you and we give you thanks for this example and for the mighty work that you've done because again, only you can save. We thank you for inviting us into this partnership. We declare these thanksgivings and praises in the name of Jesus.